So many of us go through life wanting more, believing if we just had more stuff, more things, more money, then we'd be happy. The problem is, we don't realize that what we have isn't who we are. Instead of trying to get rich, we must realize that we already are rich. So with God's help, it's time to be rich in what matters most. So real quick question as we get started off this morning, how many of you would raise your hands loud and proud and say, yep, I'm rich, right? More hands than last week and uh, a couple of you still, maybe you missed last week, right? But last week we talked about this idea and saying, hey, no matter how you slice it, no matter how we compartmentalize the data, when we look across the world and when we take what it takes to live where we live and do the things that we do, no matter how you slice it, we're rich, which we said is a proverbial, right, good news, bad news situation, right? The good news is that we're rich, and the bad news is, well, we're rich, and so we've got to take into account some of the scriptures, some of the teachings of Jesus, and kind of internalize those. How do we process through those things? How do they speak to us, and what are the things uh, that we're going to do about that? Actually, that's kind of the whole point of this series, is how do we think differently about what it means to be rich? Because none of us feel like we're rich. We never feel like we cry that imaginary line, and yet when we kind of sparse out the data or parse out the data, we have this opportunity to kind of come face to face with the reality. And so here's the instructions that we've kind of been camped on, and we're going to look at this all four weeks uh, of this series. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you were here last week, this might be familiar to you, but Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly Life. I love that. Take hold of life that is truly life. And he says it's not just enough to recognize that we're rich, but we should be rich in the things that matter, to be rich in good deeds, rich in generosity, willing to share. And that's kind of where we're going to build as we go throughout this series. And we illustrated this last week that people who tend to have wealth, people who possess great wealth, end up being possessed by their wealth. Remember, we looked briefly at the story of the rich young ruler, this guy who had everything according to the world standards. He even lived a good life, but he went away sad when Jesus gave him the instructions to sell all that he had. He went away dejected. He went away like he lost something. And we said, if we're not careful, the rich young ruler becomes our story. And when God tends to put his finger on our stuff, we get really, really sad. And so as we kind of dig a little bit deeper into this idea of the role that wealth and that money and that resources play in our life, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the scripture here. And, and I want to be really clear up front that we're not saying that money is evil, right? That wealth is a bad thing. We actually don't think it's good or bad. It kind of just is. And, and people misquote uh, a couple of scriptures all the time, and we're going to dive into that. But, but I think what I want us to understand today is that money isn't the problem, right? Wealth isn't the problem. The stuff that we have isn't the problem. The problem is when our hearts are possessed by our possessions. When we seek after wealth, when we count as wealth as our place of provision where it takes perhaps the place of God in our lives, where the things that we own wind up 
owning us. And so we're going to jump into a scripture here today, just before the scripture that we've been in, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 9. If you brought your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to be spending most of our portion looking at these two scriptures today, uh, and I want to see, want you to see how those connect in God's Word. So if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, uh, I'd encourage you, challenge you, just slip your hand up. Our ushers are walking around with Bibles. They'd love to let you borrow one. We're going to be on page 558, uh, if you'd like to turn there. Uh, and again, if you don't own a Bible or uh, just want to borrow it this time, but if you don't own it, please keep this. It's our gift to you. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to jump in at verse 9, and this is just before those verses that we already read today. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Right? If we're all honest, we all want to be rich at some point, right? How many of us have tried uh, a pyramid scheme, right? Selling stuff on the side. We've all been guilty of uh, filing into those little side projects that we hope, man, if we recruit enough people, if we sell enough product, we're never going to have to work another day in our lives. I uh, encountered such uh, a job when I was a freshman in college. It was, my, it was after my freshman year. I was at home for the summer, and uh, I got recruited to sell some knives, and uh, let me just tell you, that was a glorious summer. Uh, I got the sales pitch. I totally bought it hook, line, and sinker. If you would just recruit 1,000 of your friends to sell knives, then you're going to be rich for the rest of your life. And I was like, man, I'm going to do that. I'm going to sell these knives. Everybody needs a pair of scissors that will cut a penny into a corkscrew. You just need that in your life. And so, of course, I hit up my parents, right? Hey, mom and dad, can I practice this thing? And they were generous, and they bought it. I think I sold one single knife uh, to my future father-in-law. And um, I, think, I think that was my summer. And um, that was pretty much, I just wasn't much of a sales person, but I wanted it so badly, right? I wanted this idea of get rich quick, right? Of having to do the least amount of work, have everybody else work for me, and then I'd just reap the profits, right? If we were honest, there's a bit of us that all kind of secretly wants that independent wealth. And the fastest way to get there is usually the best way, at least in our minds. Here's the problem. The problem was that there was a promise that was real and true, but it just couldn't deliver into my life. I didn't put enough work into it. I didn't put enough effort into it. It promised financial security for the rest of my life, and it simply couldn't deliver that. Now, thankfully for an 18-year-old college kid, right, ruin and destruction wasn't far away, right? I was living in my parents' basement. I didn't have a whole lot to prop me up, but I did learn something throughout the course of pursuing this, and that's that something for nothing always has a cost. Something for nothing always has a cost, and usually it's higher than we're willing to spend, Something for nothing always has a cost, and usually it's higher than we're willing to spend, right? For most people, the allure and promise of wealth, of financial independence, of financial security uh, are just one pyramid scheme, just one side job away. And real quick here, I'm not dogging on all of those little side gigs, all of those things. Some of them are great. Some of the products are wonderful. But I will also draw your attention to a story that made headlines just a few weeks ago with a popular clothing company who would encourage their salespeople to max out their credit cards to have a certain amount of product on hand, and it led to ruin and destruction for the people who were just trying to get ahead. 
Something for nothing always has a cost, and usually it's higher than we're willing to spend. Right? And this is the idea that Paul is trying to teach Timothy that he's developing with us in verse 10 there. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This verse gets misquoted so often. Right? How many of you have heard, right, for the love of money is evil, right? They leave out a few key words within the, in the description there. That's not quite what the scripture says. It's not quite what Paul is getting at, right? It's not that money is good or bad, whether it's paper or coins or digital bytes on a computer. What he's saying is that when money sinks down into a place in our heart, when we love money, when we cherish money, when we worship wealth and the things that it can provide for us, that's when we get into a huge problem, right? Because money isn't the problem. The problem and what God has always been after is our hearts. And Paul points this out to us, that when we long for money, when we strive for the things that money can buy, that's when we find ourselves, we find our hearts being occupied by what we're supposed to own, and instead, they own us. So money, I think, is kind of like a coiled snake. Let me tell you just a story quick. A woman had a, had a baby snake, a little, little tiny snakeling, right? She raised it from an egg. Uh, it was cute as a button, and uh, maybe she had a hat for it. I don't know. But she just had this, she had this baby snake, and they were best friends, and she would take it for walks. I don't know how, but, um, you know, she would take it for walks. She'd put it on a leash, Oh, where's my picture? It's up there. There it is. She'd take the snake for walks, and uh, they just grew closer and closer together, right? She didn't even have an, a terrarium for the snake, right? The snake would just sleep next to her, coiled in a nice little ball. The snake was her best friend until one day the snake got sick, stopped eating. It wouldn't eat no matter how much food she gave it, and instead of sleeping in a nice curled-up ball next to her, it would stretch itself out long and rigid as they slept through the night. So concerned, she made an appointment with her doctor. She said, my snake won't eat, and it's not sleeping curled up in a ball anymore. Instead, it's sleeping long and straight, and the doctor said, your snake isn't sick. You see, when a snake like this, a python, prepares to eat an animal larger than itself, it will size it up by stretching out its body. Your snake is not sick, it's just preparing to eat you. And here's the reality. Money starts out cute. Remember your first job? Remember when you first learned what allowance was? My kids are in this stage right now. It can buy us stuff and things. And my son just had a birthday and he made out like a bandit and spent like all of his birthday cash on everything he could possibly want. And we learned very, very quickly that money is cute and innocent and it can provide for us the things that we want. But as it grows up, it becomes not a coiled snake that's our friend. It becomes something that's sizing up to eat us, to take possession of our hearts. Not because money in and of itself is bad, but because it seeps into those areas of our hearts. It promises that it can deliver safety and security, that can provide for our future, that it can be our source of strength. And when we love money in in that way, when it seeps into those areas of our hearts, all of a sudden we find ourselves being the product of that verse, that we seek after the love of money, what it can buy us, what it can afford us. We begin to put our trust in our bank accounts and in our 401ks, and we place our trust fully in what money and wealth can provide for us. We think that it can buy happiness and security and retirement on a boat when we're 45 and we begin to be consumed with what money can afford us and we end up being owned by the things that we are supposed to own. It takes up residence in our hearts and in our lives and this is the thing that Paul and that Jesus and that the scriptures point out to us is not that money is good or bad in and of itself but when it seeps into those areas of our hearts where we begin to get consumed with it, we are in real 
danger. And this is where Paul continues in 1 Timothy 6.10. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Right? Money can actually take up a place in our hearts where it becomes a spiritual issue where we pursue money more than this God who cares about us. And Paul says there are people who've sought after money and it's cost them, it's compromised their faith. Now, now let me just put that in perspective here. If I told you that, that eating tuna fish would affect your faith negatively, right? I'd never eat tuna fish. I probably wouldn't eat tuna fish again anyway. Not, not my thing. Bad example. But the point is, right, if I, if I were able to pull from Scripture or just to write you a letter and say, hey, just so you know, this thing is bad for you, um, we'd probably never touch it again. Hey, this food, this item might affect your spiritual growth or your eternity. I'd be hands off. No way, no how. Now, coffee, I might risk it. I've already had two coffees today. It's been a glorious morning, and uh, I'm a little jittery this morning, but we're going to get through it. But if you and I went out to coffee, that's a bad example. If you and I went out to lunch, and uh, we had water, um, and I said, hey, I just want to talk to you real quick about the role of money and wealth in our lives, right? As American and American Christians, we're in the top 1% of the world's population. I just want to have an honest conversation about the place and role of money in our lives together. Chances are I'd never see you again. Because money is ours. We own it. We possess it. It's not the place for the church or the pastor or anybody to talk about those things. And we put up guardrails around this money, this wealth that we have. But scripture says that there are people who've pursued money and it's cost them their faith. Which means we should at least be accountable. We should at least be having these types of conversations. And let me just remind you, this isn't because God wants your money and he's some cosmic killjoy who's trying to fund whatever it is he's doing. It isn't because the church needs your money or requires it to do what God has asked us to do. God's provided faithfully for us. But the reality is that what we do with our money is a spiritual issue. It takes up a spiritual place in our hearts, and we need to be cognizant of that fact as we follow Jesus together. Because the worst-case scenario is that money takes up such a place in our hearts, that wealth takes up such a place in our hearts, that our faith would actually be compromised because of its role and work in our lives. Right, Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived in Israel. You may remember he was David's son and he inherited a great kingdom. He asked the Lord for wisdom and he gave it to him. And Solomon was blessed virtually in every category that we can measure. And yet here's his takeaway of when he's along in life, the wisdom that he would pass on to us about the role of money. He says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves money, whoever pursues money, whoever strives after money, it's just never enough. You can never fill that void. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. He says this too is meaningless. It's found in Ecclesiastes where this great and powerful king is reflecting on all the things that his wealth and his power and his status can afford him and he comes to terms face to face with his God and he goes, you know what, all of this stuff that I spent my entire life pursuing, it just isn't worth it at the end. He says this too is meaningless. And the heartbeat that I have for us, not only today, but in this series, is that we wouldn't chase after money to the point that we're never satisfied with the blessings that God has given us. 
Right in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says that he's provided everything for us for our enjoyment. He's provided a way for us to be content, spiritually speaking, with the blessings that he's given us. That's my hope for us as we have this conversation and in this series. But the difficulty, right, is that we all kind of would say, yeah, that's great wisdom. I think I just need to try it for myself. You know what I mean? Like if I could just have a ton of money, then, then maybe I'd draw those conclusions too. But I think I should... I should at least try, right? I mean, we should at least see what goes on here. And so we see from all of these people who maybe have it all together, and we just don't want to learn their lesson. Recently, uh, Einstein's theory for happiness was sold at auction. I thought this was fantastic. I read up on the story. Here's Einstein's theory for happiness. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. Isn't that a great quote from a secular scientist, right? Somebody who had all kinds of things. We can argue about whether or not he was secular, I suppose. But the point being, here it is from the scientific community, the guy who unraveled the laws of the universe. And he says, you know what? Being content is really what life is all about. Ironically, his theory for life and happiness was a handwritten note on a, on a little stationary piece of paper, and it sold for $1.56 million. So apparently, they needed to learn the lesson, and it cost him $1.56 million. Anyway, you might say, well, okay, Einstein, that's great. Solomon, that's great. Snell getting there. What about uh, comedian Jim Carrey? How many of you have heard this quote from Jim Carrey? He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. So many of the times we pursue wealth and financial independence and, oh, if we could just get there, if we had just a little bit more, if we were just able to cross that line, then we'd be able to be happy. Then we'd be content. But the more and more that you research or pour into the people who have gone down that path, they usually arrive at this conclusion that it simply doesn't satisfy, that there's more to life than the pursuit of wealth. Whether you take it from a secular comedian's perspective, from, uh, from a physicist, or from the great King Solomon, all of the answers, and no matter how much research you do on Hollywood, on people who have and have nots, it just comes to this terms that wealth simply doesn't satisfy. What does it take to learn this lesson that pursuing more doesn't satisfy, right? I don't know how many of you guys uh, had this little event, what was it, a couple weeks ago, Halloween? Anybody do that, right? Uh, how many of you still have candy left over from Halloween? In our household, we have a fantastic tradition, which is I buy my kids candy, and uh, then we throw it away after we eat all the good stuff. Uh, they're happy because they get a couple bucks. We're happy because it gets the candy out of the house. Um, but it never fails that initially, right, uh, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. And uh, by a bit of a sweet tooth, I mean it's a, it's a big one. And uh, so I, we've been eating a lot of candy, and no matter what, I've kind of found myself this week going, I just, really want, I just really want some sugar. You know what I mean? I just want that sugar buzz, and then I eat it, and I immediately go, I don't want any more sugar, like, ever again, right? Sugar has this mentality of drawing us into itself, of going, ooh, that's, what, that's what's going to make me feel good. And then right after we do, after so long, we go, ugh, that doesn't make me feel good. But I never learned that lesson. And inevitably, the next day, the next hour, the next meal that we come to, I keep going around in this cycle. And I think that's the way that we approach money. We can sit in rooms like this and kind of get that idea. Yeah, I understand money doesn't satisfy. I understand that it might tank my faith. I understand all of these things, but it doesn't enter into an actual practice for us. So my question is, how do we fall out of love with money? 
How do we put it in its proper place? How do we rein it in and keep it? How do we remind ourselves of these biblical truths and interpersonal truths about the role of money in our lives? I direct our attention back to the verse for the series, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world, hint, that's you and I, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is what so many of us do. He says, because that's so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? If trusting in riches and wealth and money has the opportunity to be unsatisfying, to not deliver on its promises, to even potentially corrupt our faith and to pierce our heart with grief and ruin and destruction, then the answer is surprisingly simple. That's to put our trust and our hope and our faith in God as our provider, not in our bank account. See, money promises, but only God provides. Money promises all of these things about health and about security and about financial opportunity. It promises safety. It promises a way forward. But the reality is that when we trust in the promises of money, we immediately negate the role of God's work in our lives. According to the scripture and hopefully according to your experience, God provides everything that we need in this verse for our enjoyment. So the problem is simply one of putting the cart before the horse. Because if we're honest, it's easier to trust in the numbers that we see on the computer screen. It's easier to trust in the bank statements. It's easier to trust that day in and day out that the money is going to be there from our paycheck than it is to trust in a God who gives. This is why in America it's such a big deal because in other world countries, they have to trust God every single day to provide for food and to provide for the basic necessities that they need. But here... We're somewhat insulated. We can largely provide for ourselves. We're the wealthiest 1% of people in the world. We've got a handle on what it takes to be financially secure. But what if that's setting up our faith to be marginalized? What if that's taking away from our opportunity to trust fundamentally in God as our provider? Right? Make no mistake, money matters, and the money that we earn and how we spend it is important, not only in our world today, but in view of eternity. And if we all agree, as we did last week, that we are rich, that we've been blessed simply by the virtue of the fact that we are able to live in Colorado, then the reality is that we need to find the place in our lives to balance out what our money affords us and the God who provides it. Because there is a conversation going on between the resources that we have and the God who provides them, and we had better be on the right side of that conversation. Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 6, I know you've heard these verses before, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the kicker, for where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. When we trust in our riches to provide for us, when we trust in the bank statement, when we trust in our hard work to buy and afford us the life that we have, God says, you're going to get exactly what your heart wants, and it isn't me. It isn't in a God who provides. A couple verses later, he says this really, really convicting statement. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
He could have said an infinite number of things there, but he chooses to say you cannot serve both God and money. And so that leads us to the question, how do we know whom we serve? How do you figure that out? How do we know if we serve money or if we serve God? Because I think if we went around, we would all openly confess, yeah, I'm, I'm attempting to serve God. That's my heart's desire. That's what I want. And yet Jesus says these words to us some 2,000 years ago. And if I'm really, really honest with you, this is where God becomes explicitly clear. There is no mistake on whether or not you serve God or money in the scriptures. He says, if you want to know if you serve God or if you serve money or yourself or any other principality in this world, he says, if you want to be first, be last. You want to be the most important in the kingdom, then be the servant of all. If you want to be rich, then give everything away. When it comes to living in a God-sized kingdom in his rule, there is no discrepancy about what he says. He says, whatever vies for attention, whatever comes close, whatever occupies a place in your heart, that's the place and opportunity where God most wants to work. Not because he needs anything from us, but he's trying to teach us to garner and protect and nourish our souls, right? It's not that we should live paycheck to paycheck, that money and wealth is not for our provision, but it's our understanding of where that provision comes from. This is why when we look at Scripture and when it looks at God, the way that we fundamentally break the stranglehold that wealth and riches and money have on our life is to give, is to hold it loosely, is to recognize that all we have is from God and to respond in kind by giving. Giving breaks the stranglehold that we provide for ourselves, that it's our money that we own it, and so we're instructed then to give. As a matter of fact, God gives explicit instructions about tithing and giving our first fruits, returning them to God's house. Again, not because God needs money, God's good on cash flow, but what God needs, what God wants, is our hearts. It's to be at a place where we're tender and compassionate, where wealth doesn't instruct us. And so God says, if you want to be confident about the role that wealth and money has in your life, if you want to know that you're not serving the idol of wealth and money, he says, make sure that you're giving strong. Make sure that the resources that you pour out into other people, into other things, into issues that cause you concern around the world are important, are reflected in the way that our financial portfolios work. And so I want you to prayerfully consider what it looks like to serve God versus serving money. Because here's the reality. The actions that we take may not change. I don't think you have to quit your job. I don't think you have to sell everything and move to Africa. I don't think that's what God is after. But I think God's after the role in our lives in which we're able to clearly set down And to go, you know what, the way in which I ensure that my life, that my heart, that all of those things are in tune with the Lord is to make sure that nothing comes close to trusting anything other than his provision for my life. Because money promises all of these things, but ultimately, when we stand face to face before eternity, it's only going to be God's provision and his grace that makes it real for us. Giving really paves the way for us to ensure that we love God above everything else. And so next week, we're going to dive into this topic of tithing. We're going to dive into this topic of giving and what it looks like in our lives. And if today has been super uncomfortable, you might just skip next week. Sorry. But here's the deal. I'm not giving you permission to skip. Don't mishear me. But here's my point. I would rather you come face to face with this truth 
and decide that this isn't the church for you, but end up tithing eventually down the way, then I would allow you to sit here and come to this church and to not be confronted with the reality that there is a snake that's laying next to you that wants to devour you. And that God says, hey, I can take care of that. We can handle that problem. It's just simply a matter of trust and provision and of reformatting some of the ways that we think about the things that we have in our lives. And I would rather you come face-to-face with that conversation here than simply not be exposed to it. Because it's a fundamental reality of the world in which we live. We are a blessed people. We're blessed by the resources that we have. We're blessed by the view that we have of the mountains on the way into work. We're blessed by the fact that we can head up there and go camping and go skiing and do all of these wonderful things. I just don't want you to buy the lie that what provides that to you is simply your hard work. That what affords you those blessings is the 40 to 50 hours that you put in at your job and your fiscal independence and the way in which you structure your bank accounts and all of those things. I want to be very, very clear that we trust in God for our provision because we've learned the truth that we can't serve God and money. It's one or the other. And again, I can't reiterate this enough that God is after our hearts. The reason why it's a financial conversation is because that's what occupies the space in our hearts and we have to break the stranglehold grip that it has on us. And then we find that God has more and more abundant resources and more and more abundant blessings to pour out into us because we're no longer serving two masters. We're devoted to the one. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and I just want to leave you with that challenge as we kind of close today and as we move into next week. And that's, I, I challenge you, I dare you to have a real honest conversation in your house and with your spouse and with all of those people around you who fall into those financial decisions and to go, are we really trusting God or are we simply providing for ourselves and God is something on the side? Are we truly giving? Are we truly finding ourselves at a place where we're trusting in God for him to provide for us? Or are we simply protecting the status quo? Because I want to know that you're going to come face to face with this truth. That the reality is that money is a coiled snake. And it seeks to devour us. And God is after protecting our hearts. And the way that he's set up to do that is giving. The first and foremost being the tithe, which is not simply us giving to God, it's actually us returning to God. As we're going to talk about next week, the reality is that when God gives to us, he doesn't ask us to give back. He asks that we return what's already his, because everything that we have is God's. What does it look like to actually live that way, to structure our finances that way, to trust in God's provision, not simply in our own hard work? And I want to challenge you for that conversation. We're going to talk about it in depth next week. And I hope that doesn't scare you off. I hope that it causes you to step in, to recognize that we need God's voice in this area because what I don't want for any of us, for you, whether you're in this room, whether you're listening online, what I don't want for you is that you would be caused to turn away from your faith because we didn't have an honest conversation about the role of wealth in our lives. I love you too much for that. God loves you too much for that. And so for that reason, we're having a really hard conversation. 
But the best part of it is that what God commands us to is not simply to not be rich. He simply says to be rich in what matters most, rich in good deeds and in kindness. And that's where we get to end our series in two weeks, is once we put our finances completely in God's camp, then we have the ability to bless and to be a blessing to the world and to be rich in what really matters, in good deeds and generosity, in sharing with people who need the resources that God has given us. So that's our journey for the next two weeks. I hope that you'll join us. And I hope that that starts with an honest conversation this week between you and your family, your spouse, who's ever involved in those decisions. Because make no mistake, wealth and money is a spiritual issue. And that's why we're taking time to prioritize it and talk about it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this is tough. Because I, I feel the same way. My money is mine. I work hard for it, and it's mine to spend. It's mine to allocate. It's mine to trust and provide for my future. It's mine to put into retirement and all those other dreams and hopes. And God, I need to be convicted of the reality that you're my provider, not my job, not my bank account, not my 401k, not the riches and the things that this world provides me. But God, everything that I have is a good gift from you the Father of lights who gives good gifts and you've given us everything for our enjoyment and for our contentment. And so God, I just want to declare corporately that at this church, in this place, in Centennial, in Aurora, in Denver, Colorado, God, that our trust and our faith and our hope is in your provision for us. God, the numbers in our bank account don't give us a sense of security. The numbers in our 401ks and our retirement aren't what provides for our future. God, you alone are what we're staking our hope in. And Heavenly Father, I want it to be so obvious that I serve the God of the universe and not my bank account, not my checkbook. And so, God, I ask that as we go throughout this week that you would convict us of those areas, that you would give us opportunity to converse with our families to figure out how do we know if we're really serving money or if we're trusting in God for our provision. God, would you give us wisdom as we have those conversations? And God, would you give us grace? This is a, a conversation that strikes close to the heart. It strikes close to home, and that's why it's worth having and worth having well. God, reveal to us those areas where we need more of your spirit, more of our trust in you, and more relationship with you, God, that you would pave the way for us to love and trust you more, whether it's in this area or in a hundred other places where we simply are dependent on your spirit coming in and instructing us on how we can glorify you more. God, bless those conversations this week. Bring us back safely together next week as we have another important conversation about the role of your provision in our lives. God, we'll praise you for everything that you show to us, for the ways in which you challenge us, and we ask all of these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in the hearts and lives of all believers. All God's kids said. 